0: Welcome to No Diagnostic Required, a monthly look at what's happening in the C++ community with me, Phil Nash, and my co-host, as ever, Anastasia Kazakova. So, Anastasia, how are you doing this month?
1: Good, good. Mostly busy with the work, but I will talk about that later.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, um, I'm actually a little bit less stressed than usual because all the building work we've been having going on in the house is finally finished. After six months... (laughs)
1: yeah congrats actually, uh, enjoying
0: a bit of peace and quiet i've uh, not quite got my office studio built out yet but it's uh it's getting there so i'm gonna jump straight into it because we've got a lot of not to get through today so i'm gonna leave you with the first one to, to talk through because that's the the uh jetbrains state of the developer ecosystem 2021 report what can you tell us about this
1: Yeah, thank you, Phil. That's one of the things I was busy actually this month a lot. So this month we finally published the Developer Ecosystem 2021 report. It brings infographics based on the survey data, uh, which we previously did like earlier this year. And there are many interesting observations for C++. And I actually did a blog post where I covered the most interesting highlights. And also there are some commands from Matt Godbolt, uh, the creator of Compiler Explorer and Andres Klink, the creator of Serenity OS. Uh, So like, yeah, big thanks to Matt and Andres for sharing their efforts on the data. So, and if you go for the data, like I would like maybe to share just a few interesting highlights here. Yeah. So like the first one, and probably the biggest one is that nearly one of five developers. So like it's 18%, nearly 20, a little bit less. uh, They're actually using C++ 20. Even though major compilers are still like very slowly adopting this you know big C++ release. So GCC is a little bit better,' is a little bit um, behind, but still approaching. But yeah, it's great to see that it was beginning of the year and like 18% were like saying that they are using C++ 20. Um, yeah. And talking about the exact features from the C++ 20, like we asked about the models, the concept and the coroutines, and they were like the biggest uh, feature of these three was um, Modelus. Actually, forty-eight percent, so nearly half of the respondents were planning to adopt Modulus in the next uh, twelve months. So during the next year, they're gonna start using Modelus. Concepts are actually quite close. Uh, it's a choice for forty-six percent, which is also great. So and I would say that like yeah, all big features are like having big numbers there. So that means that the release is really really pretty much attractive for the C++ developers um, the from the set points they're like the still a effort of developers who are not writing any unit tests at all and we were kind of uh, disappointed there <laughs> with this fact together yeah. with Matt um, so yeah there is still a Google test uh, quite popular framework there is catch uh, yeah. I think Phil should be quite happy <laughs> with catch on the second place. Uh, it's something like 32% for the Google test and 11% catching catch. Up. Yeah, catching up quite quickly, I would say. So like the second place and the wrong second place here. <laughs> yeah, but still, you know, 30% say that they don't write unit tests for C++. So maybe they do something different. I mean, like uh, some other kind of tests or whatever, Like, but it still looks very um, strange, uh, to all of us and yeah, many competing solutions, uh, for package management problem, like, but that's, I guess the usual thing for C++, but again, a little bit disappointing fact that still manually bringing the library source code to the project is trending, uh, for like, uh, 26% of the respondents. So most of us are still doing all these things manually, not relying on any package manager. This is a little bit sad, but I guess that's how it is right now. Um, So yeah, top three project models stayed kind of unchanged. So it's CMake, Makefile and Visual Studio. Like the order was a little bit changed. So CMake is still on top, but Makefiles and Visual Studio kind of swapped. That might be just, you know, uh, a matter of our data. So because they're very, very close. So, but still like, yeah, the top three is way different in numbers from all the others. And actually C+ plus Foundation Light survey, which we validated our data against, um, they have the same top three. And actually in my blog post, I highlighted the major um, similarities and differences with the foundation research. So if you're interested in how our data compares to uh, foundation data, so you can find the answer in the blog post. Um so yeah, I don't think I will like continue here because the report is huge. We can dedicate, I guess the whole yeah. um, like edition of uh, our podcast to that. I was just maybe wondering uh, to ask you, Phil, like what was the most interesting fact maybe you found in there? Or was it like all normal?
0: <laughs> Lots of interesting stuff. But the one that really stood out for me was the, the number of people looking to use modules in the near future. I think we said a few times on this show before that we're sort of considering modules more of a C++ 23 feature, not because that's when it will be ready in the standard, but, but I think because that's when the tooling may be ready. Uh, at the moment, I think it's only Visual Studio that even claims to be feature complete on the uh, just the C++ side of it, let alone the, uh, the tooling. So, yes, yeah, so a lot of work to be done before we can really start using it in, in, in most projects. But very interested to see so many people wanting to use it so soon. So let's hope that that comes together. I think we're going to come back to modules a little bit later in the, the standards news section as well. There's still more, more work to be done there as well. But uh, yeah, that, that that really struck me, such a high number of people uh, wanting to use that in the near future.
1: Yeah, the committee definitely have to, you know, help these 48% going to adopt the models, <laughs> as well as yeah. the tool vendors. <laughs> yep.
0: yeah, yeah, that's we, true. Do, we that's definitely true. need it,
1: that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, agree. <laughs> okay, let's move forward.
0: Absolutely. So this one, sanitizers.
1: Yeah, like, um, I guess sanitizers are a very hot topic right now in the community. I see quite many people talking about them. This blog post is a little bit maybe basic. I mean, it explains some basic stuff, but still very, very useful. So if you're not using any sanitizers, this might be a good article to start your journey. So it actually explains like three types of sanitizers, the address sanitizer, memory sanitizer, and undefined behavior sanitizer. So uh, there's some short explanation on how they work. And like which issues they are capable of catching, and also the article actually estimates the CPU and memory overhead for these sanitizers, which is always good to understand, like how much you would pay for that. Um, so like for address sanitizer, uh, the article presents kind of a very nice visualization uh, with these so-called uh, yeah red zones around each set of bytes allocated with the malloc function, so you can just you know imagine how it works. Um, yeah. I won't go into the details of how it works right now, but I want just to mention that there is tweaks uh, 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 both performance-wise uh, and on memory usage. So it's just like you know two times worse than the um, you know regular run if you compare the sanitizer run and regular run. So for memory sanitizer, um, it's actually used to detect uh, uses of uninitialized memory. So and it uses the approach of a bit shadow mapping. I actually personally dig into the Google's paper about that from Evgeny Stepanov and Konstantin Serebrny. Uh I guess Costa uh, was doing some talks on that quite often, um, maybe at CPCon even I don't remember exactly. You know, live CPCon for me was so long time ago, but I remember uh, him speaking about these things. And yeah, the algorithm is actually very interesting. So the original Google paper uh, is very interesting if you're, you know, um, would like to learn these details deeper and understand how it works and the approach exactly. But yeah, just the fact is that the CPU overhead is 2.5X and memory overhead is just 2X. So it's not that big, I would say. So again, like similar kind of numbers to address sanitizer. And undefined behavior sanitizer, that's actually I would say the most awesome thing I've ever <laughs> met for C checks in that sense, because you can actually catch uh, all these not all but quite, quite many cases of this undefined behavior which is a real pain point for C++ developers as we see from like Foundation survey for example that like these undefined behavior issues they are causing the real pains for C++ developers. and the sanitizer has all these nice flags so you can actually check for some specific issues uh, which you would expect in your code or which you would like to catch like divide integer divide by zero or assigned integer overflow. So you can pass some specific flags what to catch and yeah so like it's definitely not no memory uh, impact on the memory usage and the cpu is just Uh, 1.25x from the article so Mm -hmm. anyway it's all not that big i mean like with the Valgrind, for example you get a bigger overhead uh, in cpu usually you don't need to recompile which is which could cost you something i mean like for sanitizers that's a compiler flag so you have to pass them and you have to recompile the code, which could actually, you know, take take some time. Let's call it this way. So, But uh, the Valgrind actually saves you this time, but then it has a much bigger overhead in terms of the CPU uh, compared to sanitizers. So that's like the, the huge difference. So, yeah. Um, anyway, if you would like to check more details to see some examples and this nice visualization to see how it works, just check the article. Uh, check it out. It's really very uh, nicely written. And yeah, I think, uh, Phil, would you like to add something here?
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think if you're not using sanitizers for, for any serious work, you're, you're really missing out on a huge boost to, to your ability to catch these things, which is almost impossible without them with, uh, with more than C++ on any sort of size project. And m- most people are not going to be running the sanitizers in production. So those uh, those slowdowns are not usually going to be a problem but um you know if if they really are, then you'll you'll know that, but for most people that's not gonna be an issue. just just use them,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's move forward and talk about the concept, actually, you know, <laughs> just a small remark uh this month was a little bit tough because the most interesting articles were actually coming by the end of the month. <laughs> I spotted <laughs> this article from Jonathan um just you know while I was preparing the news. And I found it really, really, very interesting. So it talks about the concepts. and like as you remember, the concepts, this is the feature from C+ plus 20 which forty six percent of the respondents for our survey were gonna adopt during the like next 12 months. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's um, like highly promoted right now in the C++ community and there are many guidelines right now promoting the concept usage. And so Danton actually wrote a blog post comparing nominal and structural concepts. And this is a very interesting thing to understand about the concept and about how they are done in other languages. So I would like to highlight the biggest outcome of the whole article is that if you want to distinguish between identical syntax with different semantics, you need to introduce some syntax to distinguish it. I think that's mm-hmm. just, you know, th- that sounds great to me, but actually that's really very true. So the... General idea here is that in case of structural typing, like a type models the concept if it has some same structure as the one required by the concept, and this is how we like do. Um, and this also means that like the naming is really important, so you have to match the, match the names. And there is a very funny example in the article from Jonathan about the T-shirt class, uh, which actually passes the semantic checks for a uh, std vector. And this illustrates the whole problem with this, you know, uh, no semantics by just you know matching the names, matching the structure. So definitely, T-shirt is has nothing in common with vector, but it actually like you know it passes all the checks. So yeah, why not? Uh, like in other languages where the concept were kind of introduced from the very beginning, um, because like the languages are quite young, the model. Um, to model a concept, developer has to actually state it explicitly, so uh, you need to actually opt-in. Uh, you definitely can do that with, you know, 30-year-old C++ code, so we we don't have this benefit just because we have huge code bases which are created many years ago. But it's, like, just good to understand all these concepts of opt-in and opt-out for the, uh, for the concept model, and that C++ actually can't afford this opt-in approach, I guess. And so yeah, that's just an interesting fact to understand about yeah. the concept and how they differ from what the other languages have and what they can actually afford. So I don't know yeah. what what you what still hear.
0: Yeah, I like to think of concepts as static duck typing. <laughs> if, if it cracks like a duck underscore V, if you like. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's more about what, what it can do rather than um exactly how it's laid out. So it's um th- there are some downsides to that. Um, I'm not sure if the article goes into that because I didn't read it in full, but mostly it's it's upside. So we we even have a better facility there than Rust in in most respects. (laughs) Not something we can usually say these days, but there we go.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So next, counting in iteration models.
1: Yeah. Let's iterate to iterators a little bit and talk about them (laughs) for a while. So. This one is from Barry Reveson, uh, who actually did a talk on iteration models of several several different languages at C++ Now online this year. And now he did a blog post where he actually ungrouped the languages he was grouping in his talk. So they're like C++ D uh, against C Sharp uh, iterators model, which he was like putting in one group in his talk, but he's now like trying to ungroup here in this blog post. And the, yeah, he mentioned this uh, proposal, like P2406, which uh, highlights this uh, like a little bit weird issue that counted iterator actually increments its internal iterator, even when reaching its own end. So I guess the committee needs to somehow address this. And there are like some solutions suggested in the proposal. And I guess there are some words from Barry in the uh, article on how to address it. But so, yeah, the thing is that in C-sharp and uh, Rust, I guess, the access to the underlying enumerator or iterator or whatever is provided based on the count check. And while in C++ and D, on the contrary, the underlying iterator is actually incremented, even if we decrement count to zero. And that's actually a huge difference. <laughs> and so, yeah, there might be these corner um, cases, these issues with this uh, final, uh, you know, step of the iterator. So let's see what the committee says on the proposal and how they, like, finally decide to address it. Uh, so, but anyway, it's uh, interesting to read through the various blog posts to understand where the problem originated and how actually the C++ and D now differ from C-sharp.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think there there was a paper from a few years ago that covered the same ground. Um, I, I forgot to make a note of the, the paper number, but I'll put it in the show notes. And I think the... Well, there wasn't actually a conclusion to that in the end. It was never really solved, but there may actually be some problems if you do something different depending on the iterator type, which is what would really be proposed here. Like sometimes it will do n, sometimes it will do n minus 1. There may be things that rely on it doing it consistently. So I forget the details. Have a read of that paper when I, I post it in there. But I, I'm also not entirely sure whether it, completely matches up here whether there is something we can do differently as far as i can see it's not been discussed in depth on the committee just yet so as you say we'll see what they come up with
1: yeah interesting yeah, problem but... anyway <laughs> yeah let's wait for their solution
0: <laughs> yep off by one error is one of the uh, uh the, the two biggest problems in computer science we won't go into <laughs> the full joke but talking yeah. of iterators alfred Dwyer yeah. has something to say about them as well <laughs>
1: Yeah, let's iterate to another article here about the iterators and that now about the concentrator. So Arthur made an interesting discovery about iterators. So like in the ASTEL, it's somehow guaranteed that iterator is convertible to concentrator. And this implicit conversion is implemented differently in Leap, uh, C++ to C++ and versus Microsoft STL, and that's uh, what the whole article is mostly about. So he's like discovering these uh, differences. So in the first case, uh, converting a structure is used, and in the Microsoft case there is a base class conversion used, and that's a huge difference because actually that affects uh, the case where there is there is an implicit conversion sequ- sequence uh because like you can't you know apply more than um several user defined uh conversions so yeah there might be differences in the whole you know how the whole code is uh, working for you so uh there are a few examples in the article so you might check them and like uh to see why that all happened so like there are some references i guess to uh, Microsoft implementation uh, and maybe there are even some reason, reasoning behind that. I honestly haven't checked that in much detail, but uh, there is some yeah some explanation about why that's done that way. So uh, yeah, th- that's just an interesting article again to check about how these uh, std libraries are actually different. So because you quite often think about the std library as just a whole, but it's actually not as uh, like it was mentioned at C++ now I'll talk on. The library evolution, actually, there is no one std library, there are just this notion of std library mm-hmm. and several implementations which, uh, which we have. And sometimes they do behave quite differently. Uh, for example, like in this case with the const iterator. So that's just uh, one interesting difference spotted here, but I think quite important just to understand when you think about these std libraries. So what do you think about it? Well, any words here?
0: Yes, I think the moral of the story is, as ever, you know, if the, if the standard doesn't say how something should be implemented and gives the library a degree of freedom, you should never assume that it's implemented a particular way, even if your particular standard does it <laughs> one way today. And of course, that is much easier said than done, especially when things are not obvious that there, there may be more than one way to implement it. That's, I think it's quite reasonable to make an, a, an assumption about this, which turns out not to be true. So... Yeah, that's C for you.
1: Yeah, actually, there is one more fruit which I kind of um, stopped for a while to think about it from uh, Arthur on the blog post is that, like, the Microsoft style, they are doing this base class conversion. And he says that, like, this public inheritance should uh, be used only for is a relationship. Microsoft is mm. kind of violates the principle here. So maybe that's why they run into this uh, kind of difference with others. So, that's kind of you know um, some subjective word, but it has some reasoning behind. So yeah, maybe maybe he's right. Maybe that's uh, how it shouldn't be. But just to consider, yeah. Okay, I think yep. we can move forward uh, mm-hmm. to a little bit um, like another piece of kind of you know uh, basic but very very practically useful uh, article, and that's how usually the John Bakar's blog uh, looks to me. Uh, Always very, very practical advices and always like, I like the actual fact that he's following the questions from the audience and, you know, writing the articles on these questions, like experimenting with the questions so you can actually ask Jonathan quite a basic thing or maybe just, you know, some simple stuff. And then you get a very uh, interesting deep dive into how you can do things uh, in this or other way. And this is one example of it. So just the question is very easy, like how to return several values from a function in C++ like first obvious solution is actually definitely not good is just you know to put them to the uh output parameters for the function that's definitely not good so like it like validates well, many general guidelines oh. and principles um like the article is focusing on improving uh with uh, you know using STD pair and STD tuple and some improvements around that and how to uh, improve the uh, copy overhead so how to like first of all how to make less copies but at the same time keep the code uh, kind of readable and self-explanatory so you don't have you know some w- weird card uh, in the uh, function body so like yeah so the solution is there in the article it's quite uh, basic so you're just using sd pair or st tuple and on the call size, the values are retrieved using the structured bindings, for example, or like ata if it's like C plus plus eleven because structured bindings is just c plus plus seventeen. Um So yeah, also there is an interesting question raised uh, in the end is about typical error errors when returning values of the same type. Um, like um and like if you mix the water or and you might not notice that easily. Um definitely some says that you should have the proper naming and that's uh, yeah one solution to that. Uh, the other says that you should use the strong types. That's the other solution. So there are kind of two camps of how to do that. And both, I guess, have their pros and cons. So like, yeah, you can check it. Actually talking about the proper naming and how you can, uh, you know, swap the things with the same name and how you can detect that. Uh, I remember there is, again, this uh, nice Google paper on how help detecting uh, parameters swap if the proper names for the arguments and for the parameters are used. So you can actually, you know, uh, write some uh, logic, which will be checking this automatically depending on the uh, what are the names for the uh, arguments and parameters. But again, to achieve that, you still have to, you know, give your arguments and parameters some reasonable names, which I don't think we do all the time. <laughs> Let's be uh, yeah quite fair here. So yeah, but anyways, so that's um, a good thing to check if you ever heard about this problem of returning several values from a function in C.
0: Yeah, I think it's a, a excellently written article. And even if you do consider yourself an expert on C it's it's worth a read because sometimes we you know we forget some of these details. Covers pretty much all the bases except one, which I'll come back to in a moment but one thing that really struck me about this was that all of these facilities that we've got over the years in c++ and most of them are enumerated in there you know pair and tuple and structured bindings and and rvo and all of those and you think you know now that like the modern approach would be be the best but actually it turns out that the best approach that covers all the bases the best is just yeah just return a struct and we could do that in c (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) something's come full circle but the one thing that i thought was missing which was yeah, a nitpick, but, but an important one, is that the difference between passing something in by reference as, a, as an out parameter and actually returning it assuming an RVO applies is that in the first case, you, you have to be potentially pay a cost of initializing and then be overwritten. So you've got that like two-stage initialization problem going on, which can be quite costly. Uh, or you can leave yourself open to, you know, uninitialized variables, which can be even harder to track across function call boundaries. Whereas when you use um, uh, RVO, return value optimization, it's as if you have passed an uninitialized copy in uh, and then it fills it out using initialization rather than assignment. So you get the, you know, the best possible performance and the best possible safety. So that, that's, that was worth pointing out. And I think that was missed in the article. As if you needed any more convincing not to use out parameters.
1: Yeah, I was actually like waiting for Jonathan to, you know, to put this uh, proposal from Herb on the table with, you know, marking all these in out, in out, Mm. forward move parameters. And I was, (laughs) to be honest, waiting for this link uh, till the very end. (laughs) And I was very surprised that I. And, uh, met it there, but maybe just because that's not in the language, actually, it's just a proposal, which still sounds quite interesting, I mean, and promising in that sense. So maybe we can put some, you know, logic and semantic uh, when we have these parameters explicitly marked as if that's an output parameter or just an in-parameter, and we can do something in static analysis and in compilers, then it might help.
0: Yeah, but then we'll still have the the syntax it doesn't require it as well, so it won't help in all cases. But
1: yeah, <laughs>
0: and in new code yeah, you should generally right. try to avoid them anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, very rare you really need yes, it in, yes. in in out. <laughs> yeah, nothing is a silver bullet. Yeah, that's yeah. good.
0: <laughs> but talking of performance, what about parallel STL algorithms?
1: Yeah, I spotted this uh, this month that Rainer Graham actually did a couple of posts talking about the parallel algorithms of STL. So the first one, not this one, but the previous one, was mostly uh, describing the basics of the what are these execution policies in C plus plus seventeen. So what is this like sequential when it runs uh, obviously sequentially execution policy when there is a parallel execution and execution policy which uh, occurred like vectorized. So when like you know, the code is running in parallel on multiple threads and allows the uh this kind of interleaving of the individual loops and it works nicely for sim, the single instruction multiple leader. So uh yeah, the first blog post actually explains all these basics with some you know good examples. But this one then is presenting the measures uh which Renner took um to test actually the uh the parallel STL algorithms. And the idea was uh just to understand if actually using them uh, kind of, you know, brings the benefit and what is the actual benefit. So will it be like, you know, four times quicker if I have uh, four uh, times more cores on my system? And it actually how it goes. So that's how it works. So he actually proved the idea. So he was doing the task with Microsoft compiler uh, on Windows and with GCC uh, 11, I guess, on Linux, so he kind of took, uh, for Microsoft Compiler, it was also some recent versions. So they were like just the two recent versions on Windows and uh, GCC on Linux. So, and the results were kind of just as expected. So on Windows with eight cores, he got uh, like the Perl execution, something like 10 times faster than the sequential. And on Linux with the four cores, he got the execution uh, like four times faster for the Perl case. Interestingly, the Perl and the Vectorized case are very, very comparable. And like it seems that the thing is that like Visual Studio uh, implementation of the Perl and like vectorized policies are just uh, nearly the same. And actually, all these uh, like the differences between Perl and Vectorized is just a hint for the compiler. So the compiler could probably just default to Perl, uh, and that's it. So that's why probably the numbers are comparable. So that's just also a very interesting observation. So, yeah, that's just a short article that proves that actually the whole idea generally works. So, if you uh, ever like considered, but still like, you know, questioning these Perl algorithms, probably you can start using them because uh, you will likely see the real benefit. And the benefit will be just, you know, just as much core as you have, you'll get this benefit. Numbers will correspond. So, that, that's actually good to know that, yeah, the idea proved itself.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess we've moved more and more into the, the multi-core world. Obviously, we've been in for, for quite some time now, but increasingly now the heterogeneous world with uh, uh, GPUs and other um, you know, external chips that can really speed things up massively. The parallel SDL algorithms are a very specific way of doing that. We do need a more general mechanism for being able to drill, deal with um, Parallelism and uh, async uh, in particular. And of course, that's been the domain for many years of a concept called executors. So that's a good lead into the standards news because there's, there's a new paper uh, just to right, P2300. So it's on R1 now. stood execution. And this is continuing the, the story of, of executors. It's not an executors' paper, though, which, which is interesting. But yeah, this um sort of supersedes the um the previous one, Unified Executives proposal. Uh P01 sorry, P0443. That was on R14 just recently, but the first version of that actually dropped in 2016. That paper alone has been around for a while. That was the unified one. That suggests that it unified some existing proposals from even before that. And I think I traced back the earliest one that directly contributed to that to uh to this one from um 2012 uh so nearly a decade we've been trying to get executives into the standard and of course even that was based on earlier work in um say plus plus 11 we got stood future and stood async which um yeah they're an attempt in that direction but they have some problems particularly performance dynamic allocations and uh And even just composability, the way these things work together when you start to to put them together in different flows. So uh, that and and other reasons, uh, particularly for heterogeneous computing, as I said, you know, that that dynamic allocation cost was a real killer. We started going down this road of of, uh, executors, but turned out to be a bit tricky to get right. (laughs) So we're still at it. So rewinding back to this, this latest proposal, what does it do differently? So it's actually quite interesting to look at what it's not <laughs> it actually starts off the, um, uh, the, the the paper. What this proposal is not. So it's not a patch on top of that unified executor's proposal. And not asking to update the existing paper, but retire it in favour of this new one. And then it goes on to, to talk about, um, uh, in the, the, the second paragraph there, uh, take, takes the design of the current executor's paper, that's the unified one, applies targeted fixes to it to allow it to fill the promise of the sender-receiver model, uh, as well as all the facilities we consider essential when writing user code using standard execution concepts. So it's taking all the feedback that they got from SQ1, but then also sort of reframing it in terms of this um, what it calls the sender-receiver model. Now, I'm not familiar enough with, with any of these papers to really be able to do, a, do justice to a comparison between sender-receiver and uh, what we called executors before, so I'm not even going to attempt it. But it is a slight difference in, in direction, which you know still has the potential to <laughs> displease some people. But I think the idea here is to try to really strip things back to some sort of lean and mean, like a minimum viable executors in a way. Except it's not executors. And I think we also discovered that this sender-receiver model uh, probably addresses m- more of our needs uh, better anyway. I'd also list all the design changes, which is mostly the SG1 the uh, feedback. Uh, so there are quite a lot of fixes that have gone in, as well as things that have come out from uh, compared to the, to the executor's paper. One question you may have, and particularly if you look at some of the early examples, is how does this compare to co-readings, which we already have in the standard now? Uh, it looks like some of those examples will be better written as coroutines with a bit less uh, you know, syntactic noise around them. But coroutines themselves also potentially have this dynamic memory overhead that that we can't really afford to to have, and they don't tend to play very well with the concept of cancellation. So if you do need to do an early return and then communicate that to the to the mechanism that's um, making it all run. It's not impossible, but it's very tricky to get right. You have to be really careful about it. So this is sort of like a, a little bit more bare bones. Um, you, know, you, you put together the sequencing yourself, so you're in control of it. And then the the cancellation uh, facilities is quite well defined. Again, I'm not going to say more than that. I'm not familiar enough to, to do it justice, but that's that's my reading for this. Seems like um, a good step. Whether it's going to be enough, for everybody to agree in time to get it into twenty three seems a bit tight, but I know some people are hopeful. It seems like a decade is long enough for us to to actually get something in the standard in this direction. <laughs> yeah. So we, we we definitely need it. So, <laughs> did you have any thoughts on this one at all, Anastasia?
1: Yeah, I'm actually impressed with, you know, 14 revisions for the original paper and that many people involved. And I see some like names who are definitely very, very interested in, like, uh, in this paper. And actually, I see some interest and I see some discussions now in the community about the executors and how we might use them, how we might benefit from them. So there is some, uh, I would say, expectations for this. So not sure. Let's see how it goes. Maybe it will require another decade, but hopefully not. Uh, let's see if, like, you know, starting not, not from scratch, but, you know, from some kind of a new paper uh, will help us here. <laughs>
0: mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm hopeful we'll, we'll get something, uh, as long as it doesn't mean that we get the wrong thing. That's <laughs> something that um, yeah we, we have had to do before. In fact, talking of that, <laughs> the next paper to look at is a contract paper. So contracts famously were taken out of 20 after they were initially I- accepted in. And since then, we've been keeping an eye on this. We've mentioned this a few times uh, in the show. Some papers have come out where studying not a new contract's paper, but it's talking about things in the space, trying to pin down all the terms used and what the, the interesting use cases are. It seemed like we you know, had differences of, of opinion on those before, differences of understanding even. And that was what was really getting in the way of achieving any sort of consensus. So this is the first one, at least that I know of, that's actually a new contract paper, and similar to the not executors paper that we just looked at, this is sort of stripped back even more so than the the stripped back version that made it into twenty originally. They've taken out the things, anything that that smells of being controversial. So it's called a bolt only contract support because one of the the biggest con- controversial points was this idea of continuation, where uh, if a Contract handler is is violated, or the contract violation handler is called. Uh, there is a mode where execution can continue regardless, and that leads to all sorts of problems with undefined behavior. In fact, introducing undefined behavior that wouldn't be there without the contract and allowing this time travel problem that uh, I think we've discussed before uh, gets very messy. So you can understand that being controversial. So that's just been taken out. It's not in there, so it's not a problem. So is really uh, very minimal. It's just either. The contracts are not considered at all as if they were not there, like there were there were macros that were compiled out, or they are checked and abort if they fail and that's it, really. Syntax is basically the same as the uh, the contracts paper that was originally accepted in fact most of the details are apart from the things that have been taken out so it seems like it has a good chance of making some progress, I think, because there was obviously. Decent support before, just not quite enough. So taking out those controversial bits, I'm hoping it's going to be enough to get something in for 23. We, we thought it might be too tight, maybe it still is, but this is probably our only hope. So let, let's hope that uh, it does get aborted. <laughs> Any thoughts? Yeah, on that? I guess
1: everyone was hoping for contracts uh, in C plus plus 20, and there were these sort of you know big fours in C plus plus 20, which actually turned to be big. Mm i mean like yeah modelless concept and car but i met many people who were still thinking the contracts are there for quite a long time uh even though they were stripped out uh, kind of at the very last moment uh, i would say so like at least many people even didn't notice that on time so hopefully we'll get them sooner or later um like you know from the tooling perspective from the like company involvement I'm still thinking that uh, like all we need is just to understand how it's uh, like designed and what is the syntax, and then we can try and help people with some you know static analysis on top of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, first, yeah, the committee has to you know agree on how it actually uh, planned and how it actually intended to work. So like define you know minimal scope or MVP as they call it. Uh, uh, it's actually interesting to see this, you know, operation in the language proposal. Uh, so, yeah, but like, if we got something, we can start working on that. I mean, adding to some compilers and adding to code analyzers. So that would be, I guess, a very good move forward for the developers. But first we need, yeah, committees to somehow decide what are their goals with the contract. I guess that was the, uh, the main point uh, for the arguments, like, where are the goals? So how we all see them. So hopefully that will be resolved. Let's see.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, another topic that um, well, <laughs> this is not going to make it into 23, but uh, it's good to see still a lot of a um, lot of discussion on it as we as we move through that time frame is uh, pattern matching. But this is a new paper from Herb Sutter, pattern matching using is and as, and it's a pretty big paper because it pretty much subsumes all of the previous or current pattern matching proposal that's, that's been worked on, but with some very important twists. As the the title suggests, it introduces two new keywords, the operators, is and as. And if you're familiar with uh, some other languages, like um, certainly C-sharp, and I think some others have these keywords, they, they use them pretty much just as dynamic casts but, or, or tests involving dynamic casts. And these can do that, but they're much more general. In particular, they are overloadable operators, so you can actually plug in whatever behavior you want. And the, the, even if you don't do that, there's a whole series of, um, or sequence of, different ways they can be used that, that are well-defined in the paper. So you, you get all sorts of um, very nice behavior just out of the box. It looks quite complicated when written down, and maybe that is a problem. Maybe that's not. But in usage, it just does seem to give us some, some very nice uh, properties. But just to show you the one of the Tony tables of the the existing pattern matching syntax versus the the Herbs proposal, there are some consequences. And one of one of them is that one of the problems that keeps coming up with the uh, the the existing pattern matching proposal is this ambiguity between when a uh, a name is mentioned. Does it mean a a newly introduced name that binds to some part of the pattern, or is it a reference to an existing variable? And so we've had to introduce things like either the case keyword for the existing name or the let keyword for the introduced name, which is all fine. But it does make the context the the, the syntax sometimes look a bit uh, dense. So this avoids all of that by placing. Well, when you have a decomposition match, where this com- comes in, yes, you actually need two square bracket blocks. One on the left has the the names that you're binding, and then one on the right has the thing that you're you're mashing against. And that still sounds a little bit ambiguous when I say it like that, but when you see it, actually, it makes perfect sense because it got is or as in between, and that's what makes it just read very naturally. Ah, I can see what's happening. So it solves that problem, but at a slight cost that. As you can see in the middle of that Tony table, it does get a little bit more verbose, creeps across the page. But some other things are less verbose. So on balance, it's probably probably about the same. So that's very promising on its own. For me, I think the, the most attractive part of this paper is that these keywords can be used throughout the language, not just in a pattern match, not just in an inspect statement. For example, you can use them in just normal if statements. And they work exactly the same way. And they, they look very natural as a result so that it expands the power that we've really only had in pattern matching before to to be used throughout the language so don't know whether this paper in exactly this form is going to be what takes over but i think it's uh, some, some very interesting ideas very keen to um to see that discussion move forward as well so i definitely have a, a big interest in in pattern matching any thoughts on that
1: yeah, I I would say that I'm looking now at that. I really like how the code looks on the right of the Tony table, like all this is, uh, just because, yeah, it reads, uh, easily. And that actually means, you know, I can't stop thinking as, as a tooling person. That means that it's parsing easily. Uh, and like, yeah, we can do a better job. So, but yeah, readability is very important, I would say. So when you have something that structural, I mean, you know you have these names on the left and then you have what you're like binding on the right. It's always much easier to parse and much easier to read. And I think that's what herb is trying to do with quite many recent papers is just to make the language um you know, easily semantically readable, like when you read the language and you actually understand the query concept between behind this piece of code. And you don't have, you know, to apply too many rules of uh, what it actually means. So, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that that looks like a part of this attempt.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good sign that it just works naturally in all these different parts of the language and doesn't need to be in a, in a particular place for it to work. So Yeah, that's a yeah. Good
1: sign. But I would expect some people who would say that this is not a real C <laughs> Yeah, but that that's fine. <laughs>
0: It's definitely not real C plus plus twenty. Uh, yeah, that's true. That, that's, true. <laughs> that's true. Okay, um, moving on. Got one more proposal to discuss. We've had a few big papers already, and this is another big one on uh, modules. Actually, it's not such a big paper; it's just a big topic. So, I mentioned earlier that we were going to talk about modules again. Obviously, they they're in C plus plus twenty, but as well as all the the problems with compilers not supporting them, the tooling not being there, that there's still some issues, particularly around our expectations on tooling and what we can say about that, that are still unresolved. So around the time that they were still being put into 20, there was a, um, a new study group started, the the tooling study group. And one of the things they were given was this project, if you like, to create a, a TR technical report on tooling around modules, the ecosystem report, I think it was called. And they, they were given a number of questions to to resolve to provide recommendations for tooling vendors to, to be able to like, establish a consistent way of, of working so that where possible they can interoperate or at least work with no surprises. And that seemed to have gone a bit quiet a bit. I don't think a lot went on there, particularly... Uh, during the, the pandemic times, but it seems to be picking up again now. And so this paper has come up in that vein. It doesn't seem to be particularly targeting that TR. In fact, it seems to be suggesting a new one. And I'm not sure if that's just because the author didn't know about the original one or because the original one didn't go anywhere. But um, it does present a number of requirements, as the title says, but not just for Bloomberg. That just happens to be what the, the author knows about, but the they pitch has been more general purpose. In fact, really for anyone that doesn't use a monorepo, I think is the the idea here, which is probably most companies or most projects. So the set of requirements, uh, there's uh, seven of them. They're mostly to do with dependency discovery or module discovery. That's always been the the big sticking point. So there's a set of requirements that um, these people at Bloomberg feel are, are really important. And they, they do have impact on different types of tooling. And static analysis is mentioned in there a few times as well. But um, I think when I first saw this, I was a bit worried that some of the big problems that we, we talked about back in the plus plus twenty timeframe uh, maybe hadn't been resolved as well as we thought. But I think that they have. They just hadn't necessarily been accounted for in this paper. So in particular, the, the parsing overhead in order to discover what a module's dependencies are is um, not a full C++ parser. Uh, I just need a preprocessor. Uh, But you can't do it with anything simpler than a preprocessor because it does need to be able to do preprocessor substitutions in order to work out what a module is. So so, I think some of the concerns maybe are not um, as as big as they, they seem, but good to see that these are being picked up again. I would have hoped that most of these would have been more resolved by now, since C20 is already out there. But I think it's good that we're continuing the, uh, the conversation about it. Did you have any thoughts on this one?
1: Yeah, actually, I'm like thinking about that. From one side, we have, you know, these models featuring the standard, which is kind of signed, and we're like, you know, 2021, we have the featuring C20. And like, yeah, we have some implementations even ongoing in the compilers and in the build systems, but nothing is actually really ready for like all these production cases, Bloomberg probably, uh, just because, yeah, there's still some things to talk about, still some things to address and a huge work for the tooling vendors to actually adopt all these changes. So. Uh while well, like yeah, I might be impressed with, you know, forty-eight percent going to adopt models in the twelve next twelve months, but I'm really not sure they will be able to do that, to be honest. Uh, yeah. just because there's still a huge bunch of work ahead of us with models and we need to resolve them very carefully, I guess, otherwise the models won't be really usable. So and uh I guess the problem is maybe that sometimes the just the regular C developers, they might not understand how much work is still ahead of us. Like a very simple example, I remember people are just coming, you know, to to our tools and asking, like, when we're gonna, you know, roll out the support models. And like I was always wondering, like, how you're gonna use that because you don't have a project model which supports them. Because I guess it's now only like you know Visual Studio who can do something and build to. I guess um, we discussed that in the in the past episodes. But apart from that, like uh, CMake still lag behind that uh, and like others. And you think about, yeah, so we can do something in the ID, for example, but you still don't have the proper tooling and you still have, you know, all this list of things to discuss. And I was following this mailing list with uh, like all these discussions about preparation for this report and all these things. And there are so, so many things were still not resolved about the model so i'm just wondering when we're going to actually have the models so should there be like you know a language release with the actual (laughs) models you know when everything is ready (laughs) i don't know let's see how it goes
0: yeah yeah i'm not sure what else we need in the language there may be things built on top of it but i think what we have now is, is what we've got it's um this is more about recommendations for uh, for tooling and, and build systems. Yeah, it
1: turned out that the language part was very, very small. I mean, like, mm. yeah, it was not that big. Uh, but yeah, to prepare the whole ecosystem for that is much harder.
0: Yeah. Yep, build systems are still the biggest problem in C++. <laughs> so talking of tools, we have our tool section. So the number of uh, new tools, or versions of tools, rather, being released or, or updated or something this, this month. So I'm going to take us through, with um starting with Kit Creator 5.
1: Yeah, let's talk about some tools which were updated in July and some major milestones for them. So Kit Creator, uh, it's just a better, uh, not just a final release uh, for pi- f- uh, 5.0, sorry, but uh, I actually spotted a very nice change there uh that they moved from the uh based code model to clankd based code model. Um that was very interesting because for a long time when we started implementing the Clang D-based engine in line we were also like considering if we should do that like on top of uh, the leap like the Kit Creator is doing, or should we move uh to the, you know, Clang D and implement some kind of or like language server protocol or something. And it's interesting to see that the kid creator who were on Clang for quite a while now is moving for the Clang-D. It's still some early stages as far as they got, because they said that like quite many things are not yet there, but it's anyway interesting. Uh, The maybe only surprise here to me was that I guess they are on top of the uh, just the uh, major Clang-D branch. The main branch, uh, while for Leplank, I guess they had some uh, own implementation, which they were not, um, you know, sharing uh, to the public. So I'm just wondering if they're going to do some uh, custom branch for the Clunky as well, or they going to, you know, do that on top of the main branch. Uh, but that's just, you know, some um, technical interest here. So anyway, so they have some uh, interesting change. So hopefully they are expecting quite a huge outcome in terms of the code model. Uh, when switching to ClangD, There actually one definite uh, definite benefit here because like LibClang is just, you know, a library. So if something is failing in your language model, everything is failing for you. I mean, the whole ID But with the ClangD, which is like just a diamond. Uh, so if it fails, you just restart it and everything is fine, so you can just continue your work without any issues. And that's a good point, I would say, like from our experience, that's a much more reliable approach here. Anyway, let's see how it goes for Kit Creator. They have some other news here, like some uh, support for building and running applications in Docker containers, which you might be also interested in. But yeah, I Mm -hmm. was mostly um, like spotted uh, this ClangDef Act and was really interested in how it goes for them. Um, yeah, let's, um, move to other tools, maybe. So yeah, CMake 3.21 was actually also released in July, I guess after CMake 20, which brought many big things like CMake presets, uh, and some like new compilers and some updates to CMake file API. This one is more like, uh, you know, uh, bug fixes maybe release, but I have to spot here that CMake. 3.21 3.21 actually uh, brings CMake Presets version 3. And the thing is that, like, while in CMake 3.20, it was uh, CMake Presets version 2. And the thing is that they are not backward compatible. Uh, that's what the kitware states that there will be no backward compatibility between the presets version. So when you, you know, change the CMake uh, 320 to CMake 321, you actually have the new version of CMake presets and you might have some issues if you just rely on some backward compatibility. So just be accurate if you switch the release. So also among the other news, there are some uh, new generator for Visual Studio 2022, uh, like which is now the preview. And yeah, talking about this Visual Studio, actually, they announced the hot reload uh, updates, uh, and especially interesting fact for C developers that they now have hot reload for C plus uh, This, I guess, a great thing when you would like to you know to shorten the loop uh, when introducing some code changes when you know um, prototyping or debugging some uh, application. So, and you don't want, you know, just the regular loop is that you spot an issue, you stop the execution, you introduce the changers, you know, you uh, build everything uh, rebuilt and then like launch the debugger again, go to this point, try to check that everything still works uh, and the bug is fixed. And with the hot reload, you can actually introduce the change and then ask uh, to, you know, to get this change into the working um, binary for you under the debugger. And so it injects the changes into the app dynamically so and doesn't trigger full rebuild of the app, which is actually great. It works for MS Build, C projects, and Visual Studio debugger only, but that's kind of expected for the, you know, Visual Studio tooling. And I think they are planning these for C make applications later uh, as well. And so, yeah, they're sharing this news on the feature and also collecting the feedback on the feature with uh, some survey. So if you're going to try the hot reload, just make sure you also, you know, share your efforts uh, in the survey with the um, Microsoft Visual Studio team. Um, talking about the next thing and the, yeah, the idea here. So definitely my, uh, you know, uh, second activity, <laughs> big activity for this month was the C line two release. So, yeah, it's actually this release, I would say it's aligned with the most recent changes in the C++ ecosystem, definitely. So we were very much focused on the recent additions. So like first thing is the CMake presets. So, uh, I would say that I was capturing the video and it just, you know, nicely works. So if you just get the project with the CMake preset, you just open it in CLine and the presets are loaded for you. So you don't actually have to do anything additional. it's uh, only works with the version uh, two of the presets for now. I guess we will be introducing the version three uh, in the next release. Again, as I said, they are not backward compatible, so just be careful with that. Uh, but uh, I think Celine will throw you an error if you try to, you know, to load the presets of version three. There will be some notification. Uh, also, like there are this thing called lifetimes analysis, so that's based on the Herp uh, Herp's proposal. About the, um, you know, analyzing like catching uh, object lifetime issues, uh, and the good thing is you actually don't have to wait till Herbs uh, proposal is in the standard and till the compilers are actually implemented. It so you just uh, can try line and check these uh, code analysis checks just in in your ID. Um, there are like many, many updates to the debugger, especially for the Windows users. I won't list them all, so you can find them on the website or in the blog post. But I would just say that quite many things done for Windows debugger, especially for Microsoft toolchain, um, and like lots of overall improvements for the breakpoints configuration. And also, we uh, actually taught CLine to work with the uh, Auto tools projects. So the make files were there before, but we just added the support for the preconfigure tab. so now you can just you know open the out those project the line will execute the uh, preconfigure tab automatically and load the project for you. So yeah, there are many other things there are like the clink interpreter bundled uh, so yeah, and if you haven't heard about it, there is actually an interpreter for C+ <laughs> which you can take and play around with um and like yeah many many other things there. As well, so uh, the all the news are on site and in the blog, and so you can go and check and uh, grab the free trial and give it a go, and let us know what you think. Actually, we're very much interested in in the feedback, and yeah, I guess that's mostly it about the tooling.
0: The bit that I was most interested in the in the C-line release is was in your and many other things section, and that was the <laughs> the, the new Docker support. Yeah. Or at least a step in that in that direction. I think previously you had to set it up just using the remote tool chain and have uh, files synced into a container. Whereas now there's my understanding is you properly support uh, having the the files locally on the mapped. Yeah, Dallium.
1: yeah. If there is a mounted folder uh, for the Docker container, so you can actually change now the connection type uh, in Cline. Saying explicitly that we'll be using the uh, mounted folder. And then it means that C line will skip, you know, this code duplication step when it just copies the code. And so, yeah, everything will be like working maybe a little bit faster in terms of these rem- uh, redundant uh, copies will be removed from workflow. So, yeah, there's just, <laughs> yeah, I put it to these uh, small other things, but I realized that it's quite important for. Quite many people, I would say, who are relying on this uh, workflow There are actually quite quite many important things in the in these other section, as usual.
0: <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> that, that was the one I was most interested in.
1: <laughs> yeah, good to know you find something there for you.
0: <laughs> so finally, then, what is about Brianna?
1: Yeah, actually, I, like, as I said, the most interesting news were coming by the end of the month. So uh, it was released in the end of July, uh, the nice interview uh, with uh, Igor Bogaian and uh, Bjarne Strauss So uh, the interview is like, it's funny thing, it's exactly one hour long. I guess it's uh, 59 minutes something, but it's really nearly one hour long. Uh, a very nice timing, <laughs> I would say. And it covers many quite, I would say, global and deep questions on programming languages and goals and evolution of the languages. So uh, they talk about the Bjarne's vision for C++ and about his goals for C++. So like the questions there, they, they sound sometimes very, very you know general. Like, for example, Igor is asking about how to make a language popular. And uh, there is a very nice answer, I would say, from Biarna, which I really liked, is that the language has to solve a problem, you know, not to make a statement. So there, there should be this goal for which the language is actually created, and you should actually serve this language in a, you know, long uh, timeline. So there should be this persistence, of like language evolution. So I would say I, I r- really like this um, this idea of the goal for the language because, like, I always think that. Every language has its goal, but I don't believe that there are just languages which are created for the sake of themselves. So, yeah, and uh, I also liked actually the, their discussion on the no-code trends and IE trends for uh, code improvements and refactorings. I think that was like, I was in the university when I heard for the first time these discussions on like, you know, automatic code transformations and IE actually writing some code, for some visual models whatever and will these things ever you know substitute the human beings in the future and we will uh, we won't need any you know programmers and uh, like diana says that yeah I, I is actually good at looking at abnormal behavior that's true like you can you know uh, did, you know you you can do some tag- tasks like the code checks for the uh, artificial intelligence But it's still very local and someone has to think about the, you know, the overall, the global structure and architecture that still has to be some human being. And also with the automated refactoring, like there are some strong guarantees needed. Like we have, for example, these, you know, MISRA guidelines, which we have to to follow for the automation. And if we, you know, uh, redirect all our, you know, refactorings and some code uh, transformations to the uh, to the IE tools to the robots or some automation. We still need uh, something that will prove that the uh, code transformations are still you know correct and the uh, we got from what we start actually semantically and the like things like performance criteria are taken into account. So yeah, Bjarne is actually um, discussing all these points which are kind of essential if you talk about this. Uh, you know, i.e. algorithms for code transformations. So yeah, it's it's a very interesting interview. It's not diving into that many stuff on like technical questions on C. I guess they're still discussing like um the very popular question to Bjorn, I guess, like what would you change in C if you get a time machine? And I really like his answer that he would better bring a better machine, <laughs> you know, to you know to, to do this stuff because Uh, As he said at that time, so all his ideas he could have now, they won't be possible at the past. So he just didn't have that resources. So if he uh, actually could have a time machine, he would take some, you know, uh, bad actually uh, machinery there. So to implement these things. And he explains this in many details, uh, like uh, he said that he would, uh, in the past, he Actually was thinking about all these outer and concept ideas, but that was not a proper timing for them at all, so uh you just couldn't afford them at that time, and now, like there is like much better timing for that, so yeah, just every um interesting interview, I would say in terms of some uh, you know global sports, I don't know, Phil, have you spotted everything interesting in the interview for yourself?
0: I've only seen that single frame so far, so. <laughs> I can't comment on this specific interview, but I, I just will say that uh, anytime you listen to uh, Bjarne talk particularly about C++, it's always going to be interesting. So I would encourage you to watch it anyway.
1: Yeah, actually, there, there, there are quite many interesting for and I would say quite many hot topics from the C++ community covered in this interview. Like, uh, Bjarne was asked if it's important to design a simpler language uh, when you're uh, is trying to do a powerful language quite often, like in C++ case, you get kind of complicated language. You know, it's not that easy for the uh, beginners to start with it. But uh, the answer was that the solution is not necessarily in the language. The solution for the Bjarne is like, have the core guidelines like the C++ core guidelines that have some minimum set of libraries to support these guidelines and then has the code analysis to force it these guidelines so that's not necessarily should be a very you know simplified language so sometimes you can't uh, get it for the goals you have and again that's about the the language which has its own goals so uh so yeah that's just energy uh, first so if you would like to understand um, you know how this evolution goes in the head of the main creator (laughs) you'd better check the the interview yeah
0: and like he said that that interview ran for just under an hour we've blown way past that so i think we should we should wrap up at this point (laughs) (laughs) thanks for making it this far and uh, i'm sure we'll have uh, even more next month so until then we'll, we'll see you next time
1: yeah see you bye